Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at Delap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. Welcome back to another episode of Success That Lasts. I recently read on a blog titled Dollars and Data. It was written by Nick Majuli. The article is titled, Choose Your Status Game Wisely. What was unique about this one is that the ideas that surfaced, I'm still wrestling with a week and a half later. How many articles do we read every single week? If you're like me, it's tons. But of all the articles you read, what percentage of them do you actually remember? Very few. In fact, I've openly criticized the financial media and the news industry. News is, by definition, something that doesn't last. It exists for a moment before it changes. As news has become easier to distribute and cheaper to produce, the quality has decreased and the quantity has increased, making it nearly impossible to delineate the signal from the noise. What's ironic is I spend hours consuming the news because I want to be more informed. I want my clients to think I'm informed. It's a status I desire. I often consume content to confirm, really, my pre-existing biases, as well as to equip me in debates. The question I really stop to ask myself is, how many minds have I actually changed with the debate style of just pounding them with data? I bet it rounds close to zero. The problem is news alone doesn't make us informed or behave any better relative to our long-term goals. But I digress. Let's get back to the original statement. Choose your status game wisely. I figured if I've continued to ponder the implications of this statement, it might be worth unpacking on this episode. I wanted to tackle the topic because the appearance of financial material wealth is widely recognized and pursued as a status symbol. I believe that the unconscious pursuit of social status can actually distract us or detract us from our real goals, the ones that would actually provide us a sense of fulfillment and accomplishment. Let's first start by defining what social status even really means. Functionally, I'm talking about a person's standing their importance in relationships to others in society. The word status implies a social stratification, essentially on a vertical scale. What are your earliest memories encountering status? I remember encountering status academically in the classroom when some of the kids were pulled into a different class. They were the talented and gifted kids and had status with some of the teachers. I remember encountering a different status when the same class showed up for PE and teams were picked. There was a different scale and a different set of standards that applied to each respective hierarchy. Hierarchies have existed within society for thousands of years. Hierarchies have existed in nature across almost every species of animal. In many of today's debates, hierarchies are labeled as evil or oppressive. That certainly can be the case in some scenarios. But it's also true that we individually can't have a value structure without a hierarchy. If we have a specific value that we want to emphasize or support more than another, that in and of itself is a hierarchy. What I think is actually fascinating about hierarchies is there's actually some evidence that we are biologically wired for status. 
researchers and neurologists have actually conducted PET scans of our brains and observed a relationship between dopamine levels and dopamine receptor density with social status. Now think about the implications of that for a minute. We all know that we could accumulate tangible financial social benefits from an elevated status, but now modern science is showing us that status could potentially influence our internal health. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter. It plays a huge role in how we feel and experience pleasure. It's hard to pinpoint a single cause of most mental health disorders and challenges, but they're often linked to too much or too little dopamine. Scientists have found that dopamine affects things in our body like learning and motivation, sleep, mood, attention, and even heart rate. If status can impact dopamine and dopamine can impact our health, sure. I guess it's easy to see why we might want to pick our status game carefully. But status isn't singular. Status is in the eye of the beholder. In the earlier example of the elementary school, academics versus athletics, it demonstrates the simple truth that there's different venues in different communities that value different things. If you're a fitness fanatic, your most recent marathon time will influence your status within that one community. Conversely, if you're a professional academic, the number of published papers would matter a heck of a lot more. Status is always relative to the context in which it's being evaluated. Academics really don't care about marathon times, just like most marathoners really don't care about publications in rare academic journals. This is why you have to play the status game so carefully. If you pick the wrong game and win, you lose. This whole topic actually reminds me of a book written by the late Clayton Christensen. He was an American economist and Harvard Business School professor. The book was titled, How Will You Measure Your Life? In it, Christensen recounts the story of being asked to consult with then-Intel CEO Andy Grove. He talked about how he avoided being sucked into telling Andy Grove what he should think about microprocessors. Grove obviously would have killed him within that domain expertise. Rather, Christensen taught Grove how to think. Then Grove reached the right decision on his own. I think a lot of life's most important decisions about money, time, and ultimately, your status game work a lot like this. So instead of thinking upon or focusing on what you should think, I'd rather frame this conversation about how you should think. So back to Christensen's book. He starts it with the following framing. Over the years, I've watched the fates of my Harvard Business School classmates from 1979 unfold. I've seen more and more of them come to reunions unhappy, divorced, alienated from their children. I can guarantee you that not a single one of them graduated with a deliberate strategy of getting divorced and raising children who'd become estranged from them. And yet, a shocking number of them implemented the strategy. The reason? They didn't keep the purpose of their life front and center as they decided how to spend their time, talents, and energy. It's quite startling that a significant fraction of the 900 students that Harvard draws each year from the world's best have given little thought to the purpose of their lives. I tell students that HBS might be one of their last chances to reflect deeply on that question. If they think that they'll have more time and energy to reflect later, they're nuts. Because life only gets more demanding. You take on a mortgage, you start working 70 hours a week, you have a spouse and children. I agree with Christensen's conclusion. Gaining clarity about your own purpose will help inform the status games that actually matter. If we pick the wrong status game or are unaware of our status game, then we fall into the trap that many people fall into, which is to allocate their time to whoever screams the loudest, their talent to whatever offers them the fastest reward. 
that's a dangerous way to build a strategy. Sometimes the status game we end up playing is simply a natural response to where we ended up in life. We look to those around us. We've all heard the saying, keeping up with the Joneses. We're often too obsessed with what others are doing and how we compare. I'm reminded of the quote, comparison can be a thief of joy. As you're aware, there's an abundance of research showing that above modest income levels, more money doesn't provide any more happiness. However, there are some other studies that have also shown money can make people happier if it improves their social rank, aka their status. In the research, just being paid highly wasn't enough to have happiness influenced by money. It required people to perceive themselves as being more highly paid than their friends and work colleagues. Now, if that's true, how complicated do things get when we realize that wealth is really what you don't see? Money invested and not spent. The status game that we pick, either intentionally or by default, will influence how we allocate our time, our attention, and our finances. Whatever status game you choose in life ultimately determines what you optimize for. Our decisions will have consequences, both good and bad. Whatever status game we choose, we should ask ourselves, are the benefits worth the cost? Researcher Jonathan Haidt published a book years ago called The Happiness Hypothesis. It explored the empirical data on the topic of happiness. In it, he ultimately concludes that intimate, loving, and enduring relationships with our family and close friends will be among the sources of our deepest joy in life. That insight should be a consideration when exploring your status game. Let me shift gears now to explore the intersection of status games and family wealth. Along this line, I was recently researching intergenerational wealth. In the process of researching families that did it well, supporting the overall family flourishing, I also studied examples of families that did it poorly. By nearly all accounts, the Vanderbilts did it poorly. The original wealth creator was Cornelius Vanderbilt. He left $95 million to his oldest son, William, back in 1877. In today's dollars, that's over $185 billion, with a B, dollars. What's incredible is, over the next 10 years, Vanderbilt's oldest son, William, actually doubled his inheritance. But how happy was William as the richest man in the world? At 83, shortly before he died, he wrote, The care of $200 million is too great a load for my brain or my back to bear. It's enough to kill a man. I have no son who I'm willing to afflict with this terrible burden. There is no pleasure to be got out of this as an offset, no good of any kind. I have no real gratification or enjoyment of any sorts that my neighbor the next block over worth only a half a million would have. So, when I lay down this heavy responsibility, I want my sons to divide it and to share the worry which it will cost them to keep. Ultimately, the heirs didn't keep that wealth for long. By 1973, when 120 of Cornelius Vanderbilt's heirs got together for the first family reunion at Vanderbilt University, there was not one millionaire amongst them. There are too many contributing factors to why and how that much wealth is squandered so quickly. As I read their story, one greater theme that jumped out at me was how swept up many of the heirs became in status games. The Gilded Age was a combination of magnificence and absurdity that translated into yachts and country homes that many of the heirs rarely visited. Many of the country's richest families were swept up in publicly displaying their wealth as they battled for more and more elevated status. Framing the Vanderbilt story through the lens of picking a status game does render some insights. 
Cornelius Vanderbilt's status game was business success and commercial power. He was single-minded in his pursuit of growing his empire. Though a gifted businessman, he doesn't appear to have been a great friend, father, or husband. Outside of finances, the family really didn't flourish. Conversely, the heirs didn't really value business success. Rather, they valued a status game that was being played amongst the global elite. They consumed the wealth to pursue it. For example, one of the daughter-in-laws, Alva, she built a 50-room summer cottage known as the Marble House. It cost $11 million back in her day to build it. In today's dollars, that's about $330 million. It required a staff of 36. In her own words, Alva was trying to rival the Medici family in Italy. She described this summer cottage that she would only spend six to eight weeks at a year as her fourth child. That's clearly a different status game. Different status games create different focus and different optimization decisions. So as we wrap up, we all know that we live in a noisy world. We're status obsessed. As we discussed earlier, there's actually some evidence to suggest that we're biologically wired to pursue status. But status ultimately resides in the eye of the beholder. So let's all be intentional and pick our status game wisely. Thanks so much, and we'll be back soon with some more content.